Welcome to Frontlines, a weekly podcast produced by Legion Magazine, Canada's leading military history publication. Join us for stories and commentary on Canada's rich military past and present. I'm Stephen J. Thorne, and today we look at what Allied commanders told their troops on D-Day. The American employed soaring oratory in calling D-Day troops to the Great Crusade. The Brits summoned the words of a 17th century soldier poet as he urged the team on in their great and righteous cause. The Canadian, on the other hand, reminded his troops of the knowledge and experience bought and paid for by brothers in arms who had gone down to abject defeat at Dieppe two years earlier. The generals commanding Allied forces on D-Day took different tacks in their efforts to inspire soldiers boarding ships and aircraft bound for the greatest seaborne invasion the world has ever seen. The invaders were embarking from Portsmouth, England, early on the morning of June 6, 1944. Five divisions, or 150,000 ground troops, in an armada of 6,900 vessels, landing on five beaches across 80 kilometers of heavily defended French coastline. Air, naval, and airborne forces joined them. On the shores opposite, 90,000 German and other Axis troops waited in the fortified bunkers and strong points that formed the heart of Hitler's formidable Atlantic Wall. At a single page each, the messages, orders of the day actually, were exercises in brevity and the power of the word. Like Abraham Lincoln's 272-word Gettysburg Address, shorter in fact, they packed a mighty punch. The American, Dwight D. Eisenhower, spoke of high ideals and the blessings of Almighty God in his one-page order of the day. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. The Brit, Bernard L. Montgomery, summoned stout hearts and good hunting before sighting James Graham, the first Marcus of Montrose, a Scot who had been called the bravest man in England. We have a great and a righteous cause. Let us pray that the Lord, mighty in battle, will go forth with our armies and that his special providence will aid us in the struggle. With stout hearts and with enthusiasm for the contest, let us go forward to victory. Both addressed the combined invasion forces of Canada, Britain, and the United States. The Canadian, Lieutenant General Henry D.G. Harry Crerer, spoke only to his countrymen as he expressed his confidence in those leading them and the ability of their rank and file to meet the tests which lie ahead. He said their role was vital and their history in battle was rich. As Canadians, we inherit military characteristics which were feared by the enemy in the last great war, Crerer said. They will be still more feared before this war terminates. The Canadians had been awarded their own beach, codenamed Juno at British Prime Minister Winston Churchill's behest after he put the kibosh on the intended fish name, Jelly. The Americans dispensed with fish names altogether, going with Utah and Omaha on the right Nestled between the British beach's gold and sword on the invasion's left flank, Juno included the French villages of Corsoy and Bernier. They were well south of Dieppe, 
were 3,623 of 6,086 men who made it ashore, mostly Canadians, were either killed, wounded, or captured in an ill-planned and poorly supported raid on August 19, 1942. The sacrifice earned them the right to do it again, this time in Normandy, for what would prove to be the ultimate Allied gamble. Creerer, commander of the 1st Canadian Army, paid tribute in his pre-invasion speech to the efforts of the hard-hit 2nd Canadian Division at Dieppe, where the objective was simply to seize and briefly hold a major port, both to prove it was possible and to gather intelligence. Some have said Dieppe provided invaluable lessons for the D-Day planners. Others have characterized it as a criminal waste of human life. Carrera came down on the side of the former. The contribution of that hazardous operation cannot be overestimated, he said. It will prove to have been the essential prelude to our forthcoming and final success. We enter into this decisive phase of the war with full faith in our cause, with calm confidence in our abilities, and with grim determination to finish quickly and unmistakably this job we came overseas to do. In contrast to the Canadians' relatively pragmatic, plain-spoken message, Ike and Monty's speeches were inspiring in the classical sense. Eisenhower alluded repeatedly to the righteousness of the Allied cause. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. While Montgomery began by almost likening the invasion to an English football match with his references to the team and enthusiasm for the contest. On the eve of this great adventure, I send my best wishes to every soldier in the Allied team. To us is given the honor of striking a blow for freedom which will live in history. The notoriously difficult and frustratingly slow-moving Monty, who made his name two years earlier with his desert rats against Erwin Rommel in North Africa, recalled the words of the soldier poet Graham. Graham was a Scottish nobleman who won spectacular victories while fighting on behalf of King Charles I in the English Civil War of the 1640s and 50s. A captain general, he fought brief but effective military campaigns using the element of surprise to overcome his opponents, even when outnumbered. In his poem, My Dear and Only Love, Graham wrote the words Montgomery quoted 300 years later. He either fears his fate too much, or his deserts are small, that puts it not unto the touch to win or lose it all. Good luck to each of you, Montgomery concluded, and good hunting on the mainland of Europe. At 236 words, Eisenhower's address was the shortest of the three by five words, but remains 75 years later the most remembered. You are about to embark on the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months, declared the supreme Allied commander. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. 
Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. An estimated 5,000 Allied troops including 335 Canadians, would die that day. Eleven months later, their comrades-in-arms would march into Berlin. You have been listening to Frontlines. I'm Stephen J. Thorne. For this and other stories, visit legionmagazine.com slash frontlines. For more military history, subscribe to Legion Magazine at legionmagazine.com. Keep smiling through, just like you always do, till the blue sky.